Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, to say the least, the statistics surrounding gun violence in the United States are disturbing. On an average day, 93 Americans are killed with guns. Seven of those are children. For every person killed with guns, two more are injured. Either by homicide, suicide, or accident, over 33,000 people fall victim every year. Perhaps if we thought more about what it's like to be shot, how in a fraction of a second your life changes, and how difficult it is to recover, we could do more to address the problem. Photographer Kathy Shore's new book of images and stories, Shot, 101 Survivors of Gun Violence in America, helps provoke that conversation. Kathy Shore joined a panel of shooting survivors and KUOW's Patricia Murphy in a discussion at Town Hall Seattle on May 18th. Sonia Harris recorded the conversation. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Ware Harmon introduces the event. Good evening, everybody. My name is Ware Harmon. I'm the executive director here at Town Hall. And on behalf of this place and our partner bookseller, the Elliott Bay Book Company, it's a sincere pleasure to welcome you to tonight's program uh, featuring Kathy Shore, Patricia Murphy, and a panel of survivors of gun violence. Uh, the event is part of our civic series and brought to you with support from the Boeing Company, the True Brown Foundation, and KUOW-FM. Kathy Shore is a photographer based in New York City. Her work crosses the borders of documentary, portraiture, and street photography. She received her undergraduate degree in photography from the School of Visual Arts and has a master's in education as well, earned while working as a New York City teaching fellow in the public schools. She teaches documentary photography at schools and nonprofits, and her work has been shown in galleries in New York City, Houston, Los Angeles, and was included in the celebrated Visa pour l'image in France. She's also the force behind SHOT, a project to focus attention on the survivors of gun violence and, of course, the subject of tonight's talk, uh, event. She'll be joined on stage tonight by four survivors featured in the book, Courtney Weaver. I should have gotten pronunciations, people, so please don't be upset if I screw it up. Liz Helmseth, uh, Star Caldwell, and Scott Hayashi. And I want to thank all of you for being with us here to share your stories. Moderating the conversation will be Patricia Murphy, an award-winning photographer, reporter, based at KUOW Public Radio here in Seattle. Please welcome this terrific panel to our stage. Thank you so much for coming out. This is um, sure to be an interesting conversation. And thanks to all of our panelists and survivors coming tonight to share their stories with you. I thought the way we would do this is we would allow everyone to introduce themselves and share a little bit of their survivor story. Um, Scott, let's start with you. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> My name is Scott Hayashi, and I am the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Utah. Um, the three-minute version, actually, it might only take 10 seconds to actually tell how it happened. I was working in a store. I looked up, three men entered, one jumped behind the counter where I was standing, put a gun on my side, and pulled the trigger. It was that fast. Um, no, no, no ability to do anything but get shot. Um, because if, if I had been armed, of course, there was no, no ability to respond, react, or anything. Uh, one moment I was standing up, the next moment I was on the floor. Um, so it, it just transpired that quickly. Uh, the, um, 
following that, of course, I tried to get to a phone to call a hosp uh, the police of the hospital, fell on the way to the phone, and probably just would have died on the floor if friends hadn't come into the store at that moment and um, saw me there and called the, um, uh, the police, who then came and picked me up and took me to the hospital. So re really, it did happen that fast. Um, eight weeks in the hospital with five major surgeries, um, went down to 98 pounds. So that, that, that's the story. My name is Courtney Weaver. And in 2009, when I was 23 years old, um, I was a blues singer in Arcata, California. And I sang at 97 gigs and had um, was featured at five blues festivals. And um, my boyfriend of six months and fiance of three days shot me in the face and arm with a hollow point 45. I had 13 reconstructive surgeries and spent um, four years of my 20s. I lived in a domestic violence shelter in 2011 and um, had to go through rehabilitation for two years after that. And um, so I, um, he was sentenced ultimately to 10.6 years um, with no parole, um, no conditions when he's released on May 31st of 2019. Uh, his motive for his shooting officially was that it was, um, he said it was an abortion murder, is she dead? But um, I believe it actually had to do with a court date that was the following Monday, three days before my shooting. Um, so, thank you. Hi, my name is Liz Jelmseth, and um, I was shot in 1973 by my brother. Um, I came home from school, it was Halloween, and I was really excited, and apparently my cat had scratched him. Um, our fight escalated and he went out into our front porch where my parents stored our hunting rifles. It was hunting season in Montana and my other brother had gotten a deer that morning and had forgotten to unload his gun. Uh, my brother came into the room, um, pointed the gun at me, kind of half-heartedly told me he was going to shoot me. I really didn't believe he would do that. Unfortunately, he did. Um, I he picked me up after he shot me and I started hopping off to the bathroom to die in the bathtub because I thought it would be easier for my mom to clean up. Um, by miracles, my sister was home, she bundled me up, she took me to a little family practice doctor in my little town in Montana who bundled me up again and put me in a station wagon and drove me to the hospital. And I spent, you know, about three years in rehabilitation I never once talked to my family about my shooting. When I woke up in the hospital, the story was that my brother had been playing with a gun. It accidentally went off and I um, was shot. I never told my family the truth and um, I don't regret that choice. Uh, when I was 30, I finally did tell them what had really happened and we have moved beyond that. Um, yeah, that's my story. My name is Star Caldwell, and in 1997, my best friend's boyfriend strangled her to death, dumped her body, and then drove to come and try to kill me. It was um, a domestic violence situation, um, and I wasn't the one being abused, so it was obviously much easier for me to stand up to him, <laughs> and I did up to him all the time so we didn't really get along he had threatened to kill me 
multiple times, but you know, you just don't really think that he's really serious or he's gonna go through with it. So there'd been police calls and so on and so forth. I'd gone out of town um, to visit some family, came back, she had left a note. They were going away on a, on a weekend getaway. They'd be back, so on and so forth. Uh, the next morning, me and my son woke up, walked outside, middle of the day, 2.30 in the afternoon, July 25th, Salt Lake City, Utah. And he pulled up in a car with, uh, he was in the front passenger seat. There was, his best friend was driving and another friend in the back seat. And he pulled up and he asked me where she was at. And I said, what are you talking about? She was with you. Weren't you supposed to go to so-and-so and so-to-so? Yeah, well, well. And I said, did you guys get another fight? He pulled out his gun and said, no, we didn't get another fight. And he shot me. Um, probably about the same distance as we are now. And I was holding my two-year-old son's hand. And the percussion of the bullet just knocked him to his butt. Apparently I scream. I don't remember screaming, but I fell out and um, I experienced the near-death bright white light and my grandmother's that had passed away recently and my best friend that had been murdered that I didn't know at that point um, was there and my son and then he started screaming and brought me back and um, I coded three, four times, three times in, three times in surgery. I had to have seven liters of blood transfused. I'm looking at my sister because she knows more than I do. I, I was knocked out. Um, <laughs> Then they overdosed me on morphine. Um, they didn't think I was gonna walk again. Well, they didn't think I was gonna live. They didn't think I was gonna make it to the hospital. They didn't think I was gonna live. They didn't think I was gonna walk again. And I could, you know, when you first come out of surgery and you kind of have that haze and you can hear, but you can't respond. And I heard the doctor tell my dad exactly that. We don't know if she's gonna make it. We've done everything she can. We can, if she's a fighter, she'll make it, if not. And if she does, she's not gonna walk again. And I just remember thinking, <laughs> Are you fucking me? <laughs> you obviously do not know who I am. So I was up and out of the hospital in five days. Um, relocated to another state. They found her body a month later. Um, completely just, there was not, they had to do, use her teeth for, for identification. So anyways, he um, will be released August 8th. We'll have done his maximum time of 20 years. He got involuntary manslaughter for her. Desecration of a body, attempted murder for me, and a firearm enhancement. And that's where we're at. Uh, thanks to all of you again for, for sharing these incredible stories of survival. And, you know, we need to take a moment and really honor what the life force that's sitting up here. Um, each of you have fairly different stories. And so I was thinking, Scott, you were relatively young when this happened to you. Uh, how did your shooting and your recovery and your survival in, inform your work? Well, I was 19 um, when that happened in Tacoma, Washington. Um, was at was a student at University of Washington, home for Christmas break, and earning money, trying to earn money to buy a stereo. For um, and <clears throat> so the um, one of the results of that. Uh, well, see, the hospital experience was quite something because um, I'd never been in a hospital before. Um, got my regular flu shots every year, but that was really about it. Um, so suddenly to be in, in the hospital um, was, was quite, quite something for me. Um, and just going through the surgeries and almost dying. Um, in fact, I thought I had died, actually. Um, 60 blood transfusions and, and um, all of that. 
One of the results of that immediately after upon release, of course, was um, I didn't really understand um, what my friends or my peers, peers, so to speak, were so concerned about uh, with, their, uh, with their life um, being 19 years old. Uh, why, why were they so concerned about if they had a date? You know, why, why were they so concerned about um, j j just what, what I, I guess a normal 19-year-old would be concerned about? Um, I, I found myself relating much more to um, people who were much older than me, who had more of a life experience, veterans, uh, who had been in armed combat, things like that. Uh, for my life, of course, um, I, was a, I was a believer back then and, and still am. That's why I'm the Bishop of the Diocese of Utah. Um, but my work has continued forward for trying to find ways for people without voices to be able to have their voices heard. Um, I work, uh, I brought together um, the Gun Safety Coalition in Utah, which is a network of people all who work on violence-related concerns and issues. Um, I'm a member of the Gun Violence Prevention Center in Utah um, and the Bishops United Against Gun Violence uh, for the Episcopal Church. So my work has taken on, uh, and my faith work has taken on this, this um, aspect of speaking out um, at legislative, um, legislative sessions, testif testifying before committees, um, and trying to get any number of things done um, related to, to the welfare and health of people. Um, and working on, on the, the intersection of, of violence, racism, and poverty, where, where so much of the violence takes place. Um, so it, it just is a fact of my life at this point. Courtney, you're nodding a lot. Um, how did your worldview change after you recovered? And how does it inform your music? Because you're, you're a blues singer. Um, so I am a lifelong survivor of domestic violence. Um, if I, I look at the trajectory of my life, you know, I didn't know um, Kenneth Fiali who shot me. I didn't know his possession of a firearm increased my fatality risk so much, just, just based off of my prior experiences before I met him. Um, but to be, you know, barely 23, um, I initially was really, really overwhelmed with how many people in my community and my music community that really, truly cared about me and banded together. And so in the first 90 days, which is a, the acute stress response phase before PTSD sets in, I thought that, you know, what my plans for 2010, like I was going to go sing at the House of Blues in New Orleans with my friends. We were all going to take a um, big trip of musicians down there for a jazz festival. Um, I thought that I could just, you know, I'd bounce back. I only had 12 days in the hospital after 37 hours of surgery and countless blood transfusions that, oh, I can just bounce back. Like, I'm doing fine. But then, you know, the subpoenas rolled around. And similar to what Scott was saying, all of a sudden my friends who were going to parties and, you know, talking about going to Burning Man and things like that, that it didn't, not only did not resonate with me, but it, the issues I was dealing with um, were things that they had no context to all of a sudden my health became my number one priority. And that's not an average 20-somethings uh, perspective. And so I actually did go to PTSD groups and connected with a lot of combat veterans who had similar um, perspectives on, on things like that. But it, was, it, it still breaks my heart a little bit of how much in my 20s I did lose. And a huge, huge reason for that is because of the 
there was no safety net. I remember when I was just fighting for my life, it was just, you know, the longest night of my life. It took, you know, two hours to get morphine, five hours to get airlifted, and then, you know, I was shot at 10.07 p.m., and I didn't get hooked up to a blood transfusion until 5.40 in the morning. So I, um, and then I had a 16-hour surgery immediately after that. So I, um, my whole world changed, and I still wanted to cling to the part of myself that was a vocalist. Having my jaw wired shut was incredibly <laughs> ironic and painful for me because I felt he had tried to shut me up. That's why he shot me in the face point blank. That's, that was his purpose um, for, for, and so I, um, Throughout my healing, my music really changed a lot. Um, I was known for being, you know, like the resident blues belter and was sexy and vivacious and had all these like fun songs written by Willie Dixon and things like that that were playful and fun and, and not serious. And all of a sudden the things that were on my mind were, you know, the incredible heartbreak and betrayal I was facing. And also just the anger at the system and the way the court treated me. It's just, you know, when they talk about people falling through the cracks, everything about my shooting that could go wrong, did go wrong. Four months before, I was shot because of the recall. I don't know if people remember that in the early 80s, there was a huge recall of the governor in California, so Arnold Schwarzenegger cut all domestic violence services four months prior to my shooting. And that left me in a rural county with no resources. I couldn't afford to fly back to get my jaw unwired. If I hadn't had my friends raise money, I wouldn't have. <laughs> and so I, after my ex was sentenced in November of 2010, I came back up to Seattle, and they went in because I had a piece of bullet that had abscessed because um, it had gone through my right forearm with a three-inch hole in my right upper lip, shattered five teeth, went diagonal, just shredded my tongue, you know, my entire titanium mandible, like a third of my face. And so I, um, I had to continue to get surgeries over and over again. It was it, at one point, and by the end of 2011, I thought I would just be constantly getting surgery for the rest of my life. And that's really hard to grapple with in your 20s when you have dreams and you're yep. young. And even though I had healed amazingly well on the outside, there were so many structural problems because people just, they see it here as a political thing. When you tell someone that, they immediately, whether or not, you know, no matter what line you straddle on Second Amendment rights, people automatically assume that, you know, you did something wrong, especially when it's um, an intimate partner. Um, I think that's why the charges for, um, you know, domestic violence shootings like Star Story, you know, we they get out sooner because of, you know, apparently it's yeah. not as uh, serious if it's someone you love. Um, you mentioned being overwhelmed with the support that you got. Who was your greatest ally? And Liz, I want to know you kept a long secret. Uh, who was your ally? Um, I, I don't think I had one. <laughs> really? Um, you know, I had a very... I slipped into a very normal life after I got home. Um, what seemed normal. Everybody on the outside thought it was very normal. That um, it was just a tragic accident and we could all just move on and it was going to be okay. So I didn't have anybody that I could tell my truth to. I had to go to sleep every night with the person who tried to murder me <laughs> in the bed next, bedroom next door. Um, I had a horrible time trying to sleep. I didn't sleep most of my childhood. I had horrible insomnia. My parents would always ask, 
why can't you sleep? And I would say, I feel like somebody's gonna kill me. And they're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody's going to kill you. But they didn't know that I knew and that my brother knew that. So I don't really feel like I had um, anybody that I could talk with that about. Um, my parents were good parents. I loved my brother. Um, yeah, I, don't, I didn't have anybody. Why did you decide to tell them in your 30s? I actually had a pretty severe um, uh, depressive problem. And so um, in the course of therapy, my therapist said, you know, it might be great if you just go home and tell your family the truth about what happened. It might help you get over this. It might help you sleep through the night. I still wasn't sleeping very well. And so I did go home, and I was really angry at that point. I was angry with my parents. I felt that there was some collusion in there. I really felt like everybody knew that he had tried to kill me, but nobody really wanted to talk about it. And so I went home, and I, when I woke up in the hospital, I guess I should go back. When I woke up in the hospital, after being unconscious for a week, my mom was in the room with me, and she was leaning over me, and she said, Lizzie, you're in the hospital. Your brother accidentally shot you, but it's gonna be okay. And instantaneously, that was the truth, but also I knew that she was lying. I just felt that she had made up this lie to protect my brother. And so when I confronted my parents about it, I was really angry with my mom, and I said, why did you do that to me? I mean, why did you make me live this lie? And she said, <laughs> It wasn't a lie. She said, that's what I believed. Your brother told me he was playing with the gun. There was no other story. Why didn't you tell me that that wasn't the truth? So it was like a, this huge misunderstanding. But when you're eight, you, you, know, you very easily fall into what you believe is the family story. Courtney, I never let you tell me your greatest ally. I, I'm sorry, I moved right on past you. Um. I definitely, um, my music community was a huge ally, um, but my Aunt Willethy was there from the get-go. She arrived with my Aunt Selena um, at the Mad River Hospital in Arcata. Um, when the, as soon as she showed up, she, um, and I love my Aunt, my Aunt Selena did an amazing job as well, but Willethy's the one who rode with me. Um, when I was airlifted, and if it wasn't for her, I, that, they would have killed me. I mean, the woman on the plane when I was being airlifted, a $38,000 flight that was privately contracted, so it wasn't covered by any um, medical coverage. And she really took charge, and it was, you know, I had 12 quick days in the hospital. I was in the ICU for three days. They kicked me out because I wouldn't wear the vibrating leg warmers that prevent blood clots, <laughs> and I was wandering around the hallways with my IV bag, looking like I was smuggling grapefruits in my jaw. <laughs> just like, you know, just normal. It's three in the morning, can't sleep, you know? Um, and so they, they transferred me to the trauma ward, and I had another, um, you know, 20 hours of surgery in the remaining 10 days there, and... I remember the day that they had me leave, they are like, well, you seem to be doing better, you seem fine. And it, that was really um, painful for me. But my Aunt Willethy, like, you know, I went and stayed with her at her house. Um, you know, she brought me music. She brought me, um, like, an iPod in the hospital. She um, really, really, you know, and she went to, it was her 40th birthday. And it was a terrible, terrible, it was the first day that I had to see my ex in court. 
um, on February 24th, and it was her milestone birthday. You know, she had her boyfriend. They all were going to go out and everything, but she wanted to show up for when I had to testify right in front of him, having him, you know, sitting in the front row about, like, 12 feet away. And, um, you know, she went. I told her she didn't have to go, and she, and she went with me. Um, but it was incredibly hard on my entire family. I mean, it was hard on the community, my musician friends who raised all the money for me. And there were so many different reactions to my stream. I mean, there were freeloaders who came on. There were, you know, people who um, came out of the woodwork to be like, I know you're a good friend, a good friend you know? And then, and then there's also the people who were just kind of like, I, you know, I can't deal with this. I can't, you know, I just want to have fun. I just want, and, and I think for me, um, the most painful part that I still grapple with is just the questions that um, people just have the license, they just say without thinking, asking me, you know, what I did to deserve it, what, 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 really, what really happened. Um, so many um, painful things that I didn't think that I, that, and I, I, and for a long time, and I guess I still kind of feel like I, I, I have to answer those questions, and I do as, as honestly and as candidly and as, um, and I'm, and I, I think that people generally are curious, and I'm, so I, I encourage dialogue, but I also really think that it makes people very uncomfortable, and that's the, the hardest thing to grapple with. I mean, I have nerve damage, I have all these things that I deal with on a physical level, but when it comes to the um, social perspective of what I survived, because it was my boyfriend, because he didn't get convicted of a violent crime, even though he shot a police officer and resisted arrest, because of all of that, um, it's, I think there's more sympathy for, for him um, I, do, I do think in general that, you know, I mean, I'm all for prison reform and everything else. And he's in a for-profit prison in California City. I don't, I wouldn't wish that on him. But I do believe that there is something to be said for having control over your own narrative and the story your life takes. And I think that what makes it so hard for people to understand is that there's nothing I could have done to stop it. There's so many times when I've done interviews and they always be like, oh, you should write a story about this or let's talk about the 10 things to look for, red flags and abuse of man. When really, what we need to be talking about is how do we raise you know, boys and, and men and, and across the spectrum, what, how do we teach them not to kill? How, you know, and, and, and that's a hard thing for people to accept because you don't want to be passive in the role your life takes. You don't want to think, that there's nothing you can do to stop someone from killing you, especially someone that you love and trust more than anyone else. So I think that that has um, had an effect on my music and on my advocacy and, and really on how I, when I testify on policy over the last five years, that that plays a huge part of my identity now. Um, and that's the hardest part of my identity, to be honest. Yeah. Star, this was a, boyfriend of a friend. You knew that the relationship was violent at the time. How did you handle the court hearing and, and how did you handle the, the trauma that you went through? Not, well, and your son, you had a... Um, I got pissed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, because 
He was like 6'4", and she was like, okay, so I was like 5'4", at the time I'm shrinking. I was like 5'4", and so she was probably like 5'2". And he was six, he was much, much bigger than her. Um, but there had been multiple times where he'd put his hands on her, she'd call me and say he was suffocating her, um, he strangled, he's trying to strangle me, he, he knocked me out, so on and so forth, and every time I would go and I would rescue her, and I wasn't afraid of him. Even, even if I had any fear, I wasn't about to let him see it. So I was always like the strong friend that every abuser hates, right. essentially. <laughs> sure. Because I didn't, I didn't, I would chest bump him. Like, I don't care. If you want to hit us, let's go. Come on. Outside right now. And so there had been a couple times where the police had been called. He threw a rock through my window so hard that it went all the way across the house and put a hole in the wall across the house. Um, but just different stuff like that. And so when it came time to testify, I, of course, was like, sick with nerves. But I just remember, I remember first being in there and I was sitting with her mom. And he walked in and I was actually sitting behind his, his side of the courtroom or whatever, which I don't know why, but he walked in and I just remember like this uh, gagging feeling in my gut, like all the way through me, like just the fear and the anger and the disgust and the disappointment and the, I can't even really explain it, all the emotion that I had felt at all of it towards him, towards what he had done to my friend, towards the danger he'd put my child in, it just was like this black line up and down my insides. And I just remember thinking, you're not about to take my power. <laughs> You're not about to take my life like I lived. You tried to kill me. You came and tried to kill me because you knew that I was going to tell them when she came up missing. You knew. That was your entire whole purpose of coming down there was to, just to kill me, to shut me up. Sorry, boo-boo, you failed. Did you have a victim's advocate? Um... Yes and no. I, 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 no. I mean, I was part of the Victims Advocacy Program where they relocated um, me. Oh, yeah. Um, to Oregon. Uh, because at the time of the shooting, um, he had gang affiliations. And so you have to remember that she was missing. So right. they didn't know. They were trying to say that she'd run off with him and she was, you know, turning tricks and she knew all about it and it was a big setup and da 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 da. And when I woke up from surgery, she was standing right there. And the first thing I said is, have they found Steph? And she looked at me, she said, no, it's just, shh, no, no. And I said, no, you need to tell them they're looking for a body. She's gone. He would never have come and tried to kill me if he hadn't already killed her. And so when I got to court, I just, I, he walked in and I went up to the stand and his lawyer was trying to be all, where'd you get shot? I'm like, in my stomach. About how many inches to the, da -da, and trying to be all technical. And I was like, look, dude, and I stood up and I pulled up my shirt. And I was like, right here. And the whole time I was up there, I just like bored into his eyes. I just stared him down. Like if I was Superman with lasers, he would have been blown up. Like no words, just emotions communicated through, through the stare. Kathy. 
coming around. Why did you decide to do this book, and, and how did you uh, convince these folks to be part of your project? Well, just by hearing them talk, I, I think that I had a, a very interesting experience. I, just wonderful survivors of horrific things that have a sense of humor, have gone on with their lives, have not let anybody take their life from them, and it was an extremely uplifting experience for me, meeting people like this. And just sitting here now and listening to them again, I feel so happy to have them in my lives. I actually feel like they're friends from this project. Yes. And it's, it seems like it could be such a dark project, like why would you want to do that? But um, I was always inspired and always happy after meeting these people. Their stories are very dark and very um, you know, horrific, but they are anything but. So um, I'm extremely happy to be here with all of them. And What do you hope this book shows and does for people who, who buy it? And well, I hope that people start a dialogue like we're doing now. I don't think anybody up here is going to say that if you're a responsible gun owner that you shouldn't have a gun. I don't think that that's the mentality that um, the for the most part, I can't speak for every survivor, but I think that it's time that we had a dialogue about how to make things better. And it's not a black and white issue, gun violence. It's got many shades of gray. And I felt doing this project, if I could find 101 survivors from all races, many ethnicities, high and low profile shootings, all ages, and have them be from all around the country, that people would be able to look at this project and say, oh, he's like me or she's like me or um, we're the same age or you know we live in the same community and even if they could look at the 101 people and say oh there's nobody here like me they by my photographing for the most part people where they were shot that they could look at the locations and say oh I go to you know Walmart all the time I drive my car all the time I sit on my couch watching TV all the time and a bullet came through the wall as I was watching TV. So I hope that I could get people from either, from all angles on this. And once you can connect with people and see that you're similar rather than there, it's not an other, it's a somebody similar to you, that then we can have a dialogue. Because I'm tired of the polarization that we have in America now that has gotten worse since I started the project. And um, I think we have to humanize things. Gun violence has always been an abstraction. When you think of gun violence, you don't really put a face on it. You think of, oh, somebody got shot. And if they survived, they were lucky, so we don't have to think about them. So by letting the survivors speak, who, who better can tell this story? Who better can represent what a gun can do in the wrong hands? And um, by showing scars and things that 
people sometimes are uncomfortable about, then we have to confront something that's in the midst, midst of all of us. Anybody can be shot. It can happen to anyone. And nobody in this country is immune. There are gun owners in the project. There's an NRA member in the project. And he had an AKA-47 under his sofa. He had a gun on him. He opened the door to his very nice house in Memphis, Tennessee, and someone had put a hit on him. So he opened the door and he was shot eight times. He eventually got to take the gun out of wherever he had it on him and scare the person off. He didn't die because of his gun, but he was shot even though he had all this uh, all these guns in his house, he was still shot. So uh, I think sometimes people have a very unrealistic expectation about what we would do if I was in that situation. Oh, if I had my gun, I would take it out and I, that guy would be dead on the floor and that wouldn't have happened. Unless you're in that circumstance, you are just spinning something that you hope you will react in that way. We, know, we don't know how we're going to react to something until we're actually in that situation. So I, that's a long, long, we went a long way there, but I hope people will start to talk. What did you learn doing this project about humanity and people? I learned that uh, I'll do the glass half full and the glass half empty. The glass half empty. There are many, many crazy people in this world. People that will think nothing of taking a gun out and shooting you for no reason, for a silly reason, for a crazy reason. But what balances that out is that all of these survivors and the good people that I met doing this project make the glass half full. And I believe that good is more powerful than evil, so. Scott, did you ever speak to the person who shot you again? Ever? No, the, um, it happened all so rapidly. Um, the, the image that is in my mind, um, in my memory of that, the actual shooting, because as I said, it happened so rapidly, um, when he's, um, he, when the gun was placed in my side, um, he said, get down, um, which I, um, but then I turned around instead um, because you, it just didn't register uh, again. If, if I, um, it just did not register at all as to what was going on. So when I turned around, um, the young man had mirror shades on, you know, um, uh, those bright silver mirror shades. Um, so the image is of my own face. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then, then the next thing w was the trigger was pulled. Um, they, they eventually found three young men who were caught in another holdup, um, but I couldn't identify. Uh, I couldn't identify them. Uh, again, because, it, again, it was so very rapid, and the only image I had was my own face staring at myself in this fellow's glasses. Um, so they never caught him, there was never a trial? As far as I know, the three men they caught were 
the ones, but I, I couldn't swear to that. And um, they eventually went to prison, and I heard that, um, no, um, one, one went to prison, one was later killed um, in another um, event. Um, and I don't know what happened to the third. Um, but you know, they, they, were, they were desperate people. I mean, you, you don't go and rob a record store. Be, you know, I mean, it, 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 um, they're, they're, they, they in their own lives were desperate. They had a Saturday night special kind of gun, you know. And, um, so, no, I never had the opportunity to speak with them or, or even know who, who they were. It sounds like you have a lot of compassion for the person who shot you. The, Was that hard to come to? You know, it, it's one of those things. Um, the um, w one of my um, actually a number of uh, uh, I was I was high school student at, at the time, and I and I had to 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 think very carefully through through the whole thing. Um, the the three the, the three young men were African American, uh, and and I was and I was also very close friends with African Americans. And I really had to ask the question, um, now what? Do I hate my friends because, you know? And the answer I came up with was, of course not. Why would I hate my friends who had to be African-American just because these, these young men were African-American? Um, and then understanding that they were just, you know, they were people and they had a life story, and who knows what brought them to the place they, um, you know, they, they, they were. Um, and, I, and I think that, uh, again, being a, a person of faith, you know, as I am and was back then too, I think it allowed a certain capacity to say, you know, the first thing I've got to do is get past this, um, survive, um, and then work, work it through, and then come to a place of resolution um, and understanding as far as I'm able to, and try to put myself into their shoes as far as I can, um, and then, if possible, extend forgiveness. Um, I mean, I, 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 would, um, I would not want to visit upon them what they did to me. Why would I want to do that? It's like I walked around New York City after 9-11, um, a week after 9-11, and, and um, met people on the street, and, and there, there wasn't a call for revenge from those people in, in the city. They, they looked around and said, why would we want to do this back to anybody, what we went through? So why would I want to visit upon them what they had done to me? It just didn't, it, um, I, I, don't, I don't get that. I mean, I can understand feelings of anger, certainly, I really do. I mean, I'm more angry at legislators who do stupid things, frankly. Um, and won't change laws than, than I am um, with the people who commit acts like this because um, legislators have the power to change it. But people who are raised in, in a certain way, well, you know, they, they're a product of what happened to them. Do you all have some path that you're walking with regards to the person who shot you? Uh, Courtney, where are you? I... Um, so I immediately, um, when I was in the hospital, I immediately forgave Kenneth, the man who shot me. Um, 
He was a legal gun owner. He had um, a concealed carry license for the 1911 Kimber 45 that he shot me with. And um, he'd had a felony violent hit and run in Las Vegas on um, Thanksgiving of 2009. And as I mentioned before, it was the three days after when my shooting was, was when his court date for, for that was supposed to happen. And um, I was in so much physical pain that I just kind of pushed it all out of the way. I mean, obviously it wasn't something where I was like, well, we can get over this. And, you know, it was definitely like, we're done. Um, and I just wanted to move on with my life. Yeah. And I, I really, internally though, I really blame myself. I didn't talk about it um, until much later, but I really did think that I did something wrong to deserve my shooting. And it was horrifying on February 24th, you know, six weeks later to hear on my aunt's birthday that he had told the police it was an abortion murder she did. That completely caught me off guard. Um, and it explained why when I was waiting to be airlifted, why they kept badgering me to take a pregnancy test, which I was on birth control at the time. So it, wasn't making, it didn't make any sense to me whatsoever until I, I heard that in court and I had to sit you know, um, yeah. right in front of him and then hear that. And I, um, I know for, from him, there, yeah, there's, there's a deep well of compassion and there's um, something to, um, at the time I did say forgiveness, but I would say it's more I reconciled mm -hmm. that I understood that he was Samoan. He had um, been knocked unconscious four times before the age of 10, but that's not an admission to what he did to me. I mean, he had the wherewithal to have, you know, CT scans in his back left pocket when he shot me, but he didn't remember to wear a shirt, and he attempted to look like he had mental illness. And so um, after my physical rehabilitation ended and I started getting back out in the world and I was doing a lot of um, work in the um, legislature and local politics on a background checks initiative, I really began to feel the anger perk up when I began tracking shootings. Um, at this point, I have so many spreadsheets. Um, I was an intern on the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence's Fatality Review for two years, and I was really trying to understand the why of it. And the more that I read and learned about it, on the one hand, I could realize that he was extremely marginalized, had had a lot of bad things happen, but he also was very selfish, and that he had tried to kill me with no remorse. He didn't feel bad about it. He didn't. He didn't, you know, his family hired him an expensive attorney. And the, thing, the place that I am with him is that he gets out of prison on May 31st of 2019. And he wanted to kill me and kill himself. That's why he shot a police officer. It just happened that the police officer who was taking care of him when they didn't know, you know, that he had the gun in the bushes, they didn't, he, his name was Hernandez. And so they used de-escalation techniques. They tased him four times. He'd already, you know, the bullet had grazed. Um, Anthony Fox, who was one of the officers trying to tase him, and they were able to de-escalate him. And um, I don't think anyone deserves to be shot, but I do believe that in my case, there was a huge amount of injustice, and I don't see that he's been held accountable, and that being in a for-profit prison right now is only going to increase his rage when he gets out and Googles me and, and looks up what I've done. His family... Um, and his best friend began attacking me on Facebook when I began testifying in Olympia and saying that it was an accident, that it was all a big mistake, that I was just lying, that it was domestic violence because I wanted to be famous. <laughs> Which, and for someone who's had to deal with so much victim blaming, it's the last thing that I ever wanted oh. people to know about. I just don't want it to happen yeah. to anyone else. And um, 
I wish that there was more infrastructure for domestic violence perpetrator treatment programs. I wish there were ways that um, our society held people accountable, but you can see it in our politics. There's no way that um, accountability is going to catch on anytime soon because politicians are taught to deny, 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 and then if something really does come out, they just don't comment on it. So people don't get rewarded in everyday life very much for being accountable and saying, I was wrong, I, I messed up. That's, that's not, unfortunately, I mean, that's, I think that I have that sense of altruism, but I don't believe that is something that we reward. And so I, you know, I'm doing my best to try and, you know, be at peace with who I am and, and know that what I've done is enough and that I didn't deserve it. And hopefully that when he's released, he won't try to track me down and murder my family members and my allies. Um, but very often, and there's one domestic violence mass shooting a week where they, it's not reported on very much, but you know, they'll murder someone else's whole entire family because they helped her get into a shelter once. And so I, I for myself, I would hope that he doesn't want to murder me. But I have so much evidence to the contrary that I try to live my life purposefully knowing that there's an expiration date. What will you do when he gets out? Do you have a plan? Um, so I just helped pass a, a bill that is the biggest part of my safety planning. I mean, safety planning is something that, and domestic violence, it's a way for you to change up your routine and, and find a way to safety. And a huge part of that is resources. So um, I'm going to do my best to protect my aunts in California because I think that's the first place he's going to look for me. Um, you know, protect my family members. Uh, if he attempts to buy a firearm in Washington or Oregon on the way up here, I'll know if he attempts to buy it because I have a foreign protection order. Um, but I, uh, I'm going to try to go to... Europe. I'm just going to try to move around a lot and, and kind of sign off of social media. I, um, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, there's not anything you can do to stop someone from killing you. Um, it's probably the hardest thing to try to convey to people because people want to think, you know, these are the 10 red flags that you need to notice and, and then you'll be safe. And, and I wish that there were more tools to um, hold him accountable. There's no parole. There's not going to be someone tracking him. So... Um, I just, I believe that I've lived, you know, a full life and yeah. I know that I've been a good person, so. Yeah. Right, right. Thank you for telling us and sharing all of these. Thanks to all of you. Um, are we going to do some audience questions? Yeah. Do we have anybody who has, I'm going to keep talking because that's what I do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna. We're grabbing some tissues. We're going. That should have been. I should have planned better for that part. And it's quite beautiful too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm Beverly Fletcher, and I'm here with Grandmothers Against Gun Violence. Uh, it's an organization here in Seattle. The question I have for you is. Yes, thank you. Thank you. The question I have for all of you is: What can we do? What can we do as? Um, individuals to address this issue of a society that accepts gun violence as normalcy, as a normal way of living here in the United States. What can we as an organization do? What can we do as individuals do to 
bring com comfort or to get change. Any thoughts you have, you know, we're willing to support you in that. Thank you. Anybody want to take that one? Well, I think what you're already doing, um, we have you, we have Moms Demand Action, um, we have Bulletproof Kids, we, we have, um, the best thing we can do is keep contacting um, the legislators and, and get on those lists um, and network together with other groups that are working on violence-related issues, which is why I started the work for the Gun Safety Coalition, even though not everybody there is directly working on gun violence-related issues. NAMI, you know, um, for instance, you know, mental health, all those sorts of things, just bringing the people together and also really trying to build some relationships with Second Amendment folk. Um, because really you can't, you can't get things done uh, unless you build relationships. Um, and, and I think that's an important piece, um, especially in Utah, for instance, which is a very, very gun-happy kind of state. Um, if you're going to get anything done, you've got to work with people with whom you don't necessarily agree. Um, and, and as Kathy said, with the polarization in this country, which is just ripping us apart, the more that one can actually work with people or get to know people with whom you might completely be on opposite sides of the, the issue, um, the better off it's going to be for the whole country. Um, and, and also then they, those individuals may not be so quick to, to look at someone like you or um, someone like me who is obviously a person who believes in gun safety as an idiot. Just as, as I don't necessarily look upon a gun owner as being a gun crazy person. So that, that I think, and the th work you're already doing um, is very important. I'm gonna just add to what Bishop Scott says. Um, there was a story in the Huffington Post about the book and I got an email from a reverend in Idaho who is uh, part of a group about um, religious for gun rights or something. But we started an email correspondence and it was, uh, we've communicated back and forth. And actually he wanted to know um, my feelings about guns and he shared his feelings. And we've been back and forth talking with emails. We have different opinions, but we've had civilized, dialogue via email. And I, I was so happy about that email that I got from him because that's exactly what I wanted to happen. People to not call me any names and tell me to go put my yoga pants on and you know, do, do more yoga. But we actually talk. So I told him when I go to Montana this summer, I, if I drive through Idaho, I'll give him a call and we can have coffee or something or a beer. And I think we should all do that. I, I'm totally on board with that. We have to start relating to each other. And this is something our country was, I remember as a kid growing up, seeing Republicans and conservatives and Democrats on TV debating. And afterwards they go over to each other, pat each other on the back and smile and joke with each other. Where, what happened to that? We have to bring that back or, or else we're all doomed because we're never, nothing is ever going to get resolved ever again. 
All right, I'm going to start talking again. I have <laughs> questions. I have questions. Liz, I'm curious about your relationship with your brother. Um, you know, the relationship with my brother um, has gone back and forth and back and forth. Um, I said before that I love my brother. I absolutely love my brother. Um, but about five years ago, he lives in Arizona now, near where my parents live. And I went to visit my mom and dad, and they said, well, let's go visit Elroy. And I said, you know what? I've given enough years to my brother. I'm done. So I don't expect that I'll ever see him again in my life. Um, we have no contact anymore. And it's not because I think he's a bad person. It's just that I've given enough time. I love him. I've forgiven him. We have absolutely never talked about him shooting me. Not one word. So um, I'm just, I, I'm done. <laughs> Do you get a sense of power from that decision? Um, I get... Not power. No, I don't get power from it. I feel good about the decision. Mm -hmm. um, the last time I was with my brother, it was it was a very difficult. He has a bipolar situation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I had a daughter, and I felt very unsafe. Yeah. And I just felt like I just I needed to be done with that. We didn't talk about mental illness and its relationship to violence, and and your brother was had. Uh, he wasn't, he, um, actually when he was younger, um, he was in a pretty traumatic um, injury. He, ha he had a brain, brain injury when he was three. When he was 16, when he shot me, um, there was no sign that he had any problems. He was very typical yeah. teenager. Um, teenagers don't think things through. We know that for a fact um, now. Yeah. <laughs> brain science tells us this is absolutely um, true. Yeah, and so uh, I really don't, I go back and forth on whether I think he actually meant to kill me or not. I don't think you pick up a gun and point it at somebody without the intention that you're, you're going to hurt them. I don't know if he thought the gun was loaded. I don't know anything about that. Um, but he was typical. He didn't think things through. He got angry easily. Um, so, yeah. Star, uh, when does your shooter get released from prison? August 8th, this year. How are you feeling about that? I'm really irritated. You're angry. Do you have a plan? Yes and no. Um, at first I was like, not necessarily hide, 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 but delete all my social media, you know, do as much as I can to delete, you know, my yeah. internet life and warn all my family and, you know, Learning, I'm going to the shooting range. Um, I'm going to be getting my concealed and carry. Um, and at first I was like, okay, low profile, low profile. And then I was like, yeah, no. Yeah, no. I was honored, you know, I'm honored that I was able to be a part of this project. And I think that it's really important for people to speak out. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important for people to stand up for themselves, even when you know that you may not make it. Um, I'm nervous. I'm nervous about him coming to find me. Yeah. I'm nervous. Um, he's he's a bipolar, schizophrenic, psychoaffective, more and more, and I don't what, well, all of them. 
all of it, like everything. Um, he had 52 charges against him in his juvenile record, nine of which were felonies. He stabbed his own grandfather in the face with a screwdriver. Like, he's not a nice person. And, and I, I, I feel like I'm a compassionate person. And I've forgiven him more in the sense of reconciliation type of thing. Because I don't feel like you're really... I don't really feel like you fit into the whole humanity mold. I don't feel like you're really human like that. You got a dirty soul or something. Or you don't have a soul. I don't, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, it's not... It's not a matter of understanding that he had a, this horrible childhood or, and everybody has their own things, but he just, uh, it is what it is. It was what it was and it will be what it's gonna be. But I vowed 20 years ago that you were not gonna take my life. I vowed 20 years ago that I was gonna stand up for her because she couldn't stand up for herself. I vowed 20 years ago that I wasn't gonna let this ruin my son's life. So we've talked about it constantly for 20 years. And it's been hard, and it's been anxiety, and it's been disgusting. And but I made a vow 20 years ago, and I'm not about to let you get out 20 years later when you shouldn't be getting out at all, and come and try and ruin me again. I will be prepared for you this time, boo. I promise you. I think we are out of time. All right. Thank you to each one of you for being brave for surviving and for coming and telling us your story tonight. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Kathy Shore joined a panel of shooting survivors and KUOW's Patricia Murphy in a discussion at Town Hall Seattle on May 18th. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.